1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with Dr. Charles Reed about his book titled The Great Famine in Ireland and Britain's Financial Crisis, which... Um, has just come out in 2022 from Boydell and Brewer, um, which is a really interesting book. I mean, it talks about uh, the Great Famine in Ireland and Britain's response to it, which is a topic that many people have looked at and is pretty much always interesting. Um, But even beyond that, this book has some really novel arguments that I think do a lot to contribute to the historical debate around Britain's response, um, to help us understand um, a really key portion of kind of British parliamentary political and economic history, and despite happening in the 1840s, have a lot of connections it turns out to what's happening in the UK right now in 2022. So Charles, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about your book.
0: Thank you very much for the invites.
1: Could you start us off please by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book
0: yes i can so my name is charles reed i'm an economic historian at the university of cambridge and i'm particularly interested in the history of british financial stability and instability and its impact on britain and other parts of the world So before I come on to why I wrote this book, I might say why I've got interested in my research area. And perhaps this is the result, ultimately, of Lehman Brothers going bankrupt, uh, the the world's largest corporate bankruptcy occurring during my first week of university back in 2008. And the world that I grew up in as a child and as a teenager which is sometimes called the great moderation suddenly disappearing and a new post-financial crisis world appearing and that got me very interested in the question of why do financial crises happen what effect do they have on the world and also the question of how can financial crises and the negative Consequences that they cause be prevented in the future, and I think my work as a historian is influenced by those key questions. Even though I've been looking at different topics, different parts of the world, and different periods um, over the course of my career. So you might ask why particular the 1840s, and why particularly write a book about the Irish famine in Ireland. Now, unusually for a historian of the Irish famine in Ireland, um, I don't have any Irish ancestry. Um, in, instead, I grew up in Britain, but I have ancestry on my mother's side from Armenian Ethiopia, and I've always been interested in um, parts of my mother's family's history, for example, the Armenian genocide, the Ethiopian famine, and various other economic crises in Ethiopia. Um And I suppose growing up with genocide and famine and economic crises and what should we call these events, who caused these events, how can they be prevented in the future? I think that was also an influence on my decision to look again at the Irish famine and particularly allowed me to merge my interest in looking at financial crises with um, my interest in Economic, broader economic crises in famines and what counts as a genocide and what doesn't. Um, So I focused on the Irish Famine because I remember reading as an undergraduate many of the main texts on the Irish Famine, um, where there's a lot of writing about this subject by. Uh, Popular writers writing mainly from a nationalist perspective and then academic writers writing um, from a different non-nationalist perspective and not really being satisfied by the answers to key questions about the famine that these writers were, um, were giving. In particular, there was very little about why did the British government not decide to borrow and decide to spend money um, using a fiscal stimulus? You know, why, why wasn't there a Keynesian fiscal stimulus during the Irish famine to pay for this? Um, they didn't really answer that. And also, they didn't really answer what was the economic context going on in Britain, the rest of the British Empire and the rest of the world in this period? And these are the key questions that I set out to work on on my PhD, which I started a decade ago. And what I found in the archives was actually really quite astonishing. I went to the archives with one thesis in mind, a very different thesis in mind, then came out going, wow, this is, you know, there's so much that hasn't been explored by historians before. There's so much of the archives, which haven't even been touched by the historians who've written about this subject. And what was really clear from the government's paperwork in the Irish famine was that the financial crises of 1847 were of critical importance in explaining the shift in government policy from a more generous policy in the first two years of the famine which mainly prevented excess mortality so that's deaths above normal levels to a situation where the government was spending a lot less money, and there was a much higher rate of excess mortality in the period after 1847, Uh, in spite of the fact that actually potato yields were improving in that period at the end of the famine, yet the excess mortality rate remained so high. And I thought, there must be another book about this to be written to reveal... The detail, particularly the financial and economic detail, about why this sudden and catastrophically terrible shift in policy occurred to ensure that the same policy mistakes are not made again in the future.
1: Mm, Always fascinating to kind of have a question, go into the archive and you get things you're not expecting. Um, I'm not surprised that a good book came out of that because that's a really cool place to start. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And this kind of obviously leads to the next question, which is, you know, tell us a little bit about what you did find. What is the kind of one of the big main contributions or maybe the main contribution of your book um, that you present?
0: So the main contribution of my book is that it wasn't laissez-faire um, or even anti-Irish attitudes, which were the, was the cause of the government's decision to U-turn on its generous relief policies in the middle of the famine, at the worst point of the famine in eighteen forty-seven. It wasn't the influence of laissez-faire or libertarian ideologies who who's suggested that who might have suggested that leaving the market, be the government leaving things alone would result in the best outcome. Instead, my research discovered that the British government actually did plan an expansion in spending at the start of 1847 on Irish famine relief policy, but that they announced this to be funded by large amounts of borrowing and they also revealed unfunded tax cuts at the same time. Now, those who've been listening to the news about Britain in recent weeks and recent months might have heard that, again, the British government did this. In in September, uh, the new trust government announced that it was going to... Uh, Borrow a large amount of money to subsidize domestic energy bills and also a planned 45 billion pounds of tax cuts, and to all funded by borrowing. Now, the reaction to this was that financial markets panicked because Britain had both. An external financing deficit i.e a trade deficit and that these policies would make it worse but also had a very large and increasing de- uh, budget deficit and the result was that markets panicked there was a fall in the p- price of the sterling there is a rise in government yield and it resulted in the government basically Having to follow a policy of austerity in order to reassure investors that investing in British government debt was a... Sustainable, sustainable was a sustainable course of action that yeah you know, that they would eventually get their money back somehow without it being inflated away or a default event occurring. And basically, exactly the same thing happened in 1847. So this budget triggered two, a series of two financial crises. Um, there is a run on banks in Britain. There is a run on the Bank of England. And its gold reserves, and that was crucial to Britain's currency at the time because Britain was on the gold standard. You could go to the Bank of England and exchange your five pound note for five gold coins. There was a um, there was a run on sterling. There was a massive rise in interest rates on government debt, and it resulted in a U-turn that the government promised austerity. And because a significant share of government spending was the Irish famine, and most of the rest were things which things which couldn't be cut. So 60% of British government spending in 1847 was on servicing Um, Britain's national debt, which had previously been racked up, there wasn't that many other items which could be cut to the extent necessary in order to reassure markets. And it's that U-turn on that generous budget funded by borrowing, which resulted in this policy of austerity of cutting spending on irish family relief at the worst point of the famine which did so much to raise the mortality rate so in short the contribution of this book is to say that actually it was incompetence which caused policy incompetence which caused the mortality rate during the irish famine to be so high it wasn't the influence of laissez-faire ideas Um, substantially. It wasn't anti-Irish attitudes, because if they wanted to do anti-Irish attitudes, why why bother announcing they are going to borrow a large amount of money to spend in Ireland on relief at the start of the year? Um, And that this is not an event... Far away in the past, um, that was caused by colonialism, you know, imperialism, you know, Victorian um, economic ideas or Victorian economic thought. But this is a story of incompetence, and policy-making incompetence, and economic policy, which can very easily be repeated in the world today. And indeed, that's exactly what I say in the preface to the book that it's dangerous ground to think that the mistakes made during the famine believe in a long distant past and that policymakers are still limited by fiscal, the amount of fiscal capacity they have and what um, financial markets are willing to tolerate or not. Um, they still make big mistakes during crises, whether that's for pandemics or during economic and financial crises. And therefore, it's very dangerous to say that um, these mistakes belong long way in the past, and it's all down to imperialism and colonialism. I wrote that earlier this year um and while the book was being um after that I signed off the final proofs, there was the financial crisis this autumn, which was again the budget which involved large amounts of borrowing, which triggered a financial panic and austerity policies, which because they are cutting subsidies on domestic energy bills will result in higher excess mortality in Britain because people will freeze to death at home over the next few winters will have also have very negative consequences and have al- al- almost sort of is a case in point at that point that it is possible to make the same policy mistakes to today. And the real importance of this book is to say that actually we do need to understand more objectively the mistakes and the policy mistakes made in the past so that they can be prevented in the future. As Cormac Agrada, another historian of the Irish famine, once said, it's the moral social responsibility of economic historians to demolish the myths about the past. And I very much see my book as furthering that cause.
1: Mm. Um, so as you said, one of the key things that the book does is myth busting. And that's particularly important because it is the Irish famine. It's not that long ago and had rather a lot of impact. So there are a lot of myths to bust. Um, And one of them that I was very intrigued to read about is the figure of Trevalian comes up kind of a lot in the histories that we've had so far um, as sort of the villain, as someone that there's a lot of attention on. And yet you quite persuasively um, point to someone else, Overstone, as being maybe equally important, maybe more important in explaining what actually happened than Trevelyan. So can you explain more about Overstone and his role? Uh,
0: Yes, I can. Um, But I think I'll, I'll start with explaining why is Charles Trevelyan, why does he feature so much in the literature already written about the Irish And he's very much the figure that Irish nationalists love to hate about um, British officialdom. He was the Assistant Secretary to the Treasury, so the Chief Civil Servant at the Treasury. And he's become so prominent in several histories about the Irish famine, uh, because he wrote a publication called The Irish Crisis in 1848 that claimed the famine was over and that all was going to be solved according to the forces of political economy and markets. Yet his role has been exaggerated, but he's clearly a wed herring, and looking at the archival material... Uh, from the British government of that time, that becomes patently clear. He was a civil servant expected to take orders from his political masters, and you can quite clearly see that in the archives. Now, this has become quite difficult for historians to find, because those archives are spread all over the country. Um, some of them are in the National Archives, but some of them are in other archives in the UK because politicians at the time had a tendency of taking their papers home with them after their periods in office rather than depositing them in a public record office and they get muddled up in the estate papers and often you don't get people um, doing carbon copies of sent letters so that means that to find a full account of the conversations going on you have to match different letters from different archives to get to the conversation and it gets even more complex if Trevelyan is uh, forwarding a letter on to his, the Chancellor of Exchequer, his, his boss, uh, asking what, how he should reply. The Chancellor of Exchequer replies to Trevelyan, who then replies to the person who sent the letter. And it becomes clear if you put all these letters together that what is clearly going on is that the Chancellor of Exchequer is telling Trevelyan what to do, and Trevelyan is relaying it to people um, who'd, who'd written to him about issues relating to the Irish And that applies to both his semi-official correspondence as well as his official correspondence.
1: So that's really interesting that piecing the things together enables you to get essentially a new read on what he was doing and really how much agency he didn't. Have, Um, But I also want to ask you a little bit more about that piecing it together, because the idea of having the papers in so many different places um, sounds really complicated to put together. Um, And obviously, this book relies so much on the archives. You already talked about kind of going into them and finding surprises. But could you tell us a bit more about this process of piecing things together in such a complicated way?
0: So I have benefited from a change in archival policies in the last 10 years. In the past, you weren't allowed to take pictures. And anyway, photography was far more expensive than now. But now we live in an age with webcams and smartphones. In the past, historians went into the archives with pen and paper or pencil and paper and could only copy down the, the quotes, small, relatively small quotes, amount of quotes from the archives and they had to build their historical interpretations on that but in the past decade a lot of archives have allowed people to take photos of the papers which means that I could take those pictures home I could assemble those the the conversations going on by letter back into the chains of letters and i can see what what was really going on and i substantially discovered that a lot of what trevelyan is saying and what people consider trevelyan's personal opinions were simply things that he was told by the Chancellor of exchequer to reply to people in email um but by letters rather um and so this is rather like, rather than just reading, uh, you know, one side of an email chain, it's instead it's rather like reading both sides of an email chain. You will get a much better, much more rounded sense of what's going on. And but the point is, this focus on Trevelyan, this uh, obsession by um, certain writers about Trevelyan has really hid the influence not only of the politicians at the time who are actually taking the decisions. So why is Charles Wood the Chancellor of Exchequer who made these decisions about expenditure? Why, why is he not a household name in the same way Trevelyan is? Why is Lord Jordan Russell, why is Robert Peel the Prime Minister's during the famine? It, uh, often down, their role is downplayed in the literature. Uh, but it also has covered up the influence of the person who really did have influence on what was Britain's economic and banking policy, and had set up much of the legislation which limited what the government could do during the financial crisis of 1847, who was Lord Overstone, who was um, the big intellectual thinker behind something called the Currency School, which is an early form of monetarism. Now, actually, it was Overstone who was the first person who was asked to write the article and then book, which later became known as the Irish crisis. In fact, Trevelyan was only sent in as a second choice, as a ghostwriter for Overstone. And the purpose of the Irish crisis was not because to write, to actually claim that the famine was over and not to claim that it was all solved, but actually was a way of trying to persuade Investors that the threat from Irish relief spending to Britain's fiscal stability was over, and that uh, they didn't they didn't need to worry about this anymore. Um, now Trevelyan knew that this was not true. He had sent a letter. Um, round to poor law officials in Ireland saying that was there enough employment to replace those who had been benefiting in Ireland from previous relief schemes? And the answer was no. It was 150 pages of human misery and horror. So he clearly knew that this was not true. But Overstone and S- Charles Wood, for Charles of Exchequer, wanted him to write this because they wanted to for investors to keep their confidence in, um, in British government debt. And they want to deflect the criticism that it was the policies that Overstone had pushed for, particularly the Bank Charter Act of 1844, had contributed to the 1847 financial crisis. They wanted to cover that up and therefore the Irish crisis is less Trevelyan's own views, it's more that this is the currency school trying to cover its tracks up um, and uh, cover up the negative impact of their policies by claiming that the famine was over and that everything would be solved according to the market. Trevelyan knew that was not true, Um, but it is the view, a political and fiscal message that the government and Lord Overstone wanted to push out. And therefore... Over focusing on Trevelyan ignores the crucial decisions and the mistakes, the errors that pe- politician, British politicians and Overstone should be rightly condemned for at the time. That has all been hidden up because of this obsession about Trevelyan. So, and in some ways, some writers have decided to shoot the messenger, Trevelyan, rather than actually shoot the government, um, those in the government, and those advising them, such as Overstone, who really were responsible for um, the errors made, the policy errors made during the famine.
1: Mm. Very important. Um, We should probably not shoot the messenger. Um, And we certainly, if we want to avoid similar things happening in future, understand exactly um, who sort of what policies were created, what their beliefs were that led to, as you said, the incompetence, really. So thank you for kind of explaining why we've um, missed this and sort of where we can point our attention in future. Um, And sort of on a similar note, kind of helping us better understand something that maybe we think we already know the answer to, um, the book obviously talks about the corn laws, the repeal of the corn laws in particular. And you argue that we can understand the impact of this better in more depth with better understanding of the consequences if we think of the repeal of the corn laws as a process over a period of time rather than kind of something that happens on a particular day or in a particular week can you sort of take us through this process-oriented mindset and what it tells us
0: Yes, so um, this is a very interesting um, issue the, the book looks into. So uh, just to explain what the Corn Laws were, the Corn Laws were taxes on imports of, of food into Britain introduced after the Napoleonic Wars, so in the late 1810s, in order to keep food prices high um, to the benefit of the aristocracy. And Peel very controversially repealed them um in 1846 during the Irish famine, claiming he did so to try to help Ireland. And there's been a very large and at times vicious academic debate over whether Peel was being disingenuous. Was he just wanting to do this anyway and use Ireland as an excuse? Or was this really motivated? Is Was he actually telling the truth? And was he really motivated by a desire to help Ireland? And what I've discovered is actually... Peel didn't actually repeal the Corn Laws. He actually only repealed half the Corn Laws. The reason why um, historians have focused so much on this moment, 1846 as being the repeal of the Corn Laws, is more of a political effect it had. It caused the Conservative Party to split in two. The backbenchers, Conservative backbenchers, left the party and formed a new Conservative Party which is the Conservative Party of that name today. Peel's front benches became the original Conservative Party, became the Liberal Conservatives, and then became um, merged with the Whigs later in the century, became the Liberal Party, and then merged with the Social Democrats in um, the late 80s to form today's Liberal Democrats. So it's an important year in British political history, but the point is, in economic history, Peel actually was pushing for a slow repeal of the Corn Laws. So he, w- the plan was to partially reduce the duties um, over three years before they were reduced further. But even after that period of transitional year of three per- free years, there was still a duty, a fixed duty, on food imports into Britain. And more over, he he actually um, did exempt some things immediately. So this is um, cheap food imports where there wasn't, which weren't competing with domestic British production. So on buckwheat, on rice, and on Indian corn, which I believe is now called Flint corn in some parts of the world, um, which is a form of maize, were allowed in tariff free immediately, but. On other grains, such as most important one in Britain at the time, wheat, this was going to be a slow process to give farmers time to adjust. Um, So Peel was trying to do something very clever here. He was trying to produce a compromise between extreme free traders and extreme protectionists. He was trying to give the landowners who um, were the bulk of support his party time to adjust their practices and get used to a new reality of lower food prices, whereas he did repeal import tariffs on some foods immediately to try to help Ireland. Now, this did not work out the way he intended. Uh, Unfortunately, he thought this was going to be a compromise which could keep his party together. Instead, his party split, and the result was during the rest of the Irish famine, there was a minority government in Britain and so people think, yeah, why couldn't the British government do this? Why couldn't the British government do that? Well, it, in fact, the British government after 1846, the subsequent Whig government of Lord John Russell and Charles Wood, was a minority government. It did not have more than 50% of seats in Parliament. And it, result, it resulted in them having to ask other political groups for support to pass pieces of legislation. And so often they became the victims of the events rather than the authors of them, as a majority government couldn't be. They had to rely on support from Peel um, and his remaining supporters. They also had to re- relied on a lot of support, for, had to rely on lots of the support of Irish nationalist MPs who were the followers of an Irish nationalist called Daniel O'Connell. Um, and so, so the British government after 1846 ended up a bit like Theresa May's government after the 2017 general election in which uh, she was few seats short of the majority, and she had to rely on the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland for a majority um, in, in parliament. Yet that didn't result in a good outcome for the Democratic Unionist Party, and um, as a result of Brexit and the Northern Irish Protocol. Likewise, this didn't necessarily result in a very good outcome for Ireland, even though Irish MPs had a disproportionate amount of influence on the subsequent Whig government. For example, throughout the entire of that government, there were Irish Catholic Lords of the Treasury, Junior Treasury Ministers, in other words, at the Treasury, who were enthusiastic supporters of the government's policies. Um, so, but it meant that when the Whig government tried to do other decisions after the financial crisis of 1847 to raise more money for Irish family relief, such as raising income tax and raising other taxes, it didn't. They, they struggled to get support in Parliament because they did not have a majority. So, if he wanted to keep the party to get his Conservative Party together. Peel failed, and the result of that was a weak minority government, which made lots of policy mistakes. (sighs) Furthermore, um, repealing the Corn Laws actually opened up a hole in the British government budget, in that half repealing the Corn Laws, reducing tariffs, did cost money, because that was in tax revenue they were not going to get. And the Whigs in the budget of 1847, where they intended to increase spending on Irish family relief, they decided to um, cut the tariffs even faster than Peel was planning to, but they didn't raise taxes elsewhere to fill this hole. And so that there was, and this is what panicked the markets, just like with Liz Truss. Um, there was plans to borrow a lot of money um, to bail out um, ba- bail out Irish poor relief relief um, While at the same time, there was uh, tax cuts which were not funded. And investors got very worried about um, British fiscal sustainability in 1847. And likewise, they also did in 2022. So you can see that actually Peel was genuinely trying to help Ireland during the, the famine in trying to repeal the Corn Laws. And he was trying to do it in quite a clever way. It was the problem was this is a gamble which did not pay off um, but there were it was well intended it was intended to help Ireland, but it backfired and backfired in quite a catastrophic way which harmed Ireland and therefore that 's a big message of the book as well how you can have a well intentioned policy but due to a lack of economic knowledge due to poor political judgment. Um, due to its simply incompetence, it can result in a very negative outcome in terms of policy outcome. And that at first might seem a bit of a contradiction in terms, how can something be well intended yet to have unintended negative consequences. But that really is the story of British economic policy and Ireland in the 1840s.
1: And hopefully less the story that we'll be telling about what's happening today, though, who knows? Because there's a whole lot of parallels that you've just drawn for us. So thank you for unpacking all of those different factors. So um, you've mentioned, obviously, the panics in 1847, but they're really quite important to this story. So can you tell us a bit more about these financial panics and how they impacted famine relief?
0: So, to give the background behind this, um, they were contributed to the budget of 1847. And the, the plan in the budget of 1847 to, was to replace the previous relief effort based on giving um, out money as wages in return for working on public works. Um, This policy was no longer working in the winter of 1846 1847. So some 700,000 Irish people were employed on this works. This is one in every uh, 10 Irish people at that period. But the problem was, is that a lot of people weren't suited to um, working on public works. If you, were a farmer that wasn't quite as, um, quite as quite as uh, strenuous as working digging d- digging a embankment or digging a cutting for a road, which is very much what the public works consisted of. Um, there was those who had pawned their clothes in order to buy food and were dying of exposure on the public works. And you also were getting an increasing number of widows and orphans um, who weren't supported by a male breadwinner. And the, the the public works essentially worked by employing men, and the idea was that all these dependents would be supported by, um, by these earnings for male breadwinners. So the plan was instead to stop the public works and instead to relieve people through the poor law. So the poor law can be indoor relief. So people go into institutions called workhouses and are supported, um, by tax local taxpayers in that way, or outdoor relief, which is basically giving food relief, such as soup kitchens or giving people money, um, or rather like today's welfare benefits, um, to live outside the workhouse during their period of need. Um, and the government knew that Irish taxpayers couldn't fund this all on their own, so they planned a system of grants and loans to pay for us. And because of um, an downturn, economic downturn in Britain, because of repeal of the corn laws, uh, Peel's government was paying this out of the budget surplus. Uh, but that surplus no longer existed, and instead, in order to spend more on Ireland, the government needed to borrow. In addition, they thought that reducing tariffs... Faster than Peel had planned would help Ireland more because they were taken in by Peel's idea that he was repealing the Corn Laws in order to help Ireland during the famine. And so the budget of 1847 promised faster cuts to tariffs as well as borrowing £8 million in something called the Irish Loan to spend on grants and loans to Irish poor law u- unions so that they could expand their relief efforts and replace the public works. Indeed, Lord John Russell, in, um, in the run-up to the budget, claimed that he was willing to um, deploy the whole of the credit of the Treasury um, to maintain, prevent starvation and maintain the people of Ireland. However, the point is this panicked markets. This was partly because the last time a named loan had been issued, so this rather than just issuing debt, which doesn't have a name and not really set for a purpose, the previous hypothecated loan, so a loan issued for a certain purpose, was to compensate slave owners when Britain freed um, the slaves in the British colonies in the 1830s. Now, this had triggered a financial crisis after a lot of that money was taken out of the country by... Uh, those who'd been given it in compensation for having their slaves being set free. Um, a lot of the money flowed to other places, other places in the world to uh, invest in other investments, whether that's railways in France and America, and even some went into American slave plantations as well. Um, but that triggered a set of financial crises in the late 1830s. And so that unnerved, that immediately unnerved the markets. Not another hypothecated loan they, they knew what happened to the last one, but at the same time, um, the worry that the British government was borrowing a lot of money in banknotes and under the gold standard exchanging it for, um, for um, exchanging it um, for gold in order to import food from abroad to feed the starving Irish. this caused a panic on government debt, it also caused a panic. Um, at the Bank of England on its bullion reserve. So the Bank of England um, was under pressure. Now, this pressure was increased by Peel's policy a few years earlier called the Bank Charter Act of 1844. This was implemented, passed and implemented, under the influence of Lord Overstone, as already mentioned. Now, this law said above a certain fiduciary limit the Bank of England could only issue banknotes if it had gold in its reserves of equal amount. So that meant that if the amount of gold at the Bank of England fell, the Bank of England had to reduce the the amount of banknotes in issue. Now the point is, what the Whigs forgot when they announced their expansionary budget of 1847, was that Britain had a trade deficit. Britain and Ireland both had a trade deficit because the uh, potato blight uh, which triggered the famine, had destroyed a lot of um p- the potato harvest in both Ireland and also Britain to a lesser extent and this meant that there had to be more food imports from abroad, so Britain's trade deficit was worse, but Britain having a trade deficit reduced the amount of gold at the Bank of England. And also, if you trigger a market panic uh, about uh, borrowing too much money, that also reduces your reserves further. So this meant that um, as the gold reserves, the gold came out of the Bank of England, the Bank of England had to reduce the amount of notes it had in issue. So at the same time, the government was trying to borrow money. um, The Bank of England was trying to constrict the amount of credit there was. Uh, furthermore, there was also panic about government debt and um, investors um, started to sell government debt. And This meant that in the week after the 1847 budget, there was an increase in government yields and a fall in the price of debt, which was faster and bigger than any other week in the history of the British national debt going back to the 1690s. So the Bank of England had made this entire situation worse. Worse still than that, the bank, the government was finding not enough people willing to subscribe to its debt, and the result was is that because the Bank of England, um, its gold reserves were falling, it didn't have as many notes that it could legally issue, and it got to the point in late eighteen forty seven in the second crisis, crisis of eighteen forty seven, where the Bank of England was unable because it wasn't legally allowed to produce any more notes because it didn't have enough gold in its reserves, wasn't able to um, lend the government money um, to pay to service the quarterly uh, coupons or interest payments on the national debt. Um, A government um, sale of treasury bills or bonds fails to meet its target. The Bank of England was unable to come up with the difference because of the Bank Charter Act, and instead half the Irish loan had to be spent on that. So half the Irish loan actually raised the eight million pounds. About half of that didn't didn't actually go on Irish relief relief spending. It had to be spent on um, filling the gap between what the government wanted to borrow and and um, and pay, servicing the national debt. And also that res- that the result of that was that uh, the child's exchequer was dead set against any further loans so he cancelled a further loan which was planned to be five or six million pounds that year and so instead of the British government spending fourteen million pounds on relief spending that year it ended up spending four firstly because the second loan was not issued and firstly because half the first loan had to be diverted towards servicing the national debt because the government found that it couldn't um issue enough debt to cover its interest payments in the final quarter of that year. And the result was, is the British government uh, had to reassure markets by promising austerity policies. And the Irish crisis was part of that, trying to to tell financial investors, don't worry, Um, the government's not going to borrow more money, because the Irish famine is over and uh, everything's going to be sorted to island according to the principles of political economy and, and uh, leaving the market be. And of course, that was disingenuous, but it was an attempt to settle markets. And therefore, this is my point about it was the incompetent way in which the government tried and failed to raise this money uh, through borrowing in 1847 which triggered this u-turn in policy which meant that relief effort was inadequate and re- and this relief policy increased excess mortality so this is the point it's not laissez faire a laissez faire government doesn't announce it's going to borrow 8 million pounds in the market and doesn't consider a further loan of size um, unimaginable to spend on poor relief ever before in British history. That's not laissez-faire. It was instead the grip on policymakers' attachments to fiscal orthodoxy, in particular the Bank Charter Act of 1844 and the gold standard, and the austerity policies that both um, the bungled attempts to announce that they're going to issue issue all this debt, plus the grip that they had uh, on fiscal orthodoxy is what caused um, the U-turn in policy, which killed so many people. So it's austerity, which raised excess mortality during the Irish famine, not laissez-faire.
1: Mm, A very important correction, Um, and again, a slightly alarming one, going back to the theme of connecting this to current events. Um, And that quite kind of helpfully um, foreshadows, I suppose, why, uh, although there is obviously a change um, in sort of political stance to a degree after these panics, um, the policies that come after maybe are intending to um, save things, but don't really manage it. Um, And so I was particularly interested that there's then a chapter in the book where you talk about Mauritius. And this sounds like it might be coming out of nowhere. And for half a second, I admit, as a reader, I did think it was coming out of nowhere. And yet, you make an incredibly useful case that um, we can learn a lot by comparing what happened in Mauritius with what happened in Ireland. Because in fact, both of them were going through famine at roughly the same time. They were both under control um, by the British government. Um, and I would wondering if you could maybe share with the listeners kind of what can we learn by comparing these things, given that they start off in similar situations, it seems like, but there isn't really a horrible, nasty famine in Mauritius. And there is in Ireland, as you've demonstrated, um, with this U-turn, with the political instability, with the currency policies. um, Why do we see such a difference?
0: So yes, this book is the first book to my knowledge about the Irish famine, which actually has a chapter about African economic history, about the uh, island of Mauritius in the late 1840s. And the reason why these are connected is that Mauritius had a financial crisis which almost wiped out its financial system in 1847 and a famine which there was caused by a, the collapse of the sugar plantation, financial collapse of the sugar plantations, plus the introduction of sev- several new diseases which wiped out much of the crop. And the point is, is that um, this meant that um, it could not sell its sugar because there was less sugar and sugar prices had collapsed um, in, in exchange. And there was no banks to finance the import of food uh, in exchange for the export of the sugar. And Mauritius is is somewhere which is basically 100% sugar. But it doesn't really grow its own food. It sells sugar in exchange for buying um, food, particularly rice, from India. Now, the interesting thing here is that Mauritius, to get its economy going again, to get its its banks um, to up and running again, got a reform plan which the colonial office had originally suggested for Ireland. So when it became clear that the government could not issue any more loans without panicking markets under the Bank Charter Act. The colonial secretary suggested that they should reform the Bank Charter Act, alter it, and create something which was closer to a currency board, which was hoped might make it easier to issue loans. He also suggested that it might be possible to impose capital controls. So this is um, to bring the Mundell-Fleming trilemma here. You can only have two out of three policies of free capital flows, a fixed exchange rate, and control over your own monetary and by extension fiscal policy. And the point is, is by choosing to remain on gold standard, the bank charter act, the British government had chosen free capital flows and a fixed exchange rate over having control of its monetary and fiscal policies and be able to use them in a way that helped Ireland. Now, the point is is that you could sacrifice capital controls in exchange for having more control of fiscal and monetary policy. And this is exactly what the colonial office proposed. The only problem that it couldn't be implemented for Ireland because... The Whig government relied on their majority for Peel and the Peelites, and Peel thought the bank charter act was going to be one of his great legacies in politics, and the Peelites threatened to make the government fall if it dared change this legislation. So because Ireland was administered as an integral part of the UK by the Treasury and by the Home Office, um, and because it was run directly by the British Parliament, it didn't get this plan. So, uh, slightly downtrodden, the colonial secretary um, and and disappointed, his plan was not implemented in Ireland. Suddenly, got a letter from the island of Mauritius, which was a formal British colony, which was actually run by the colonial office and not run by the Treasury and the Home Office, saying that there was a um, a harvest failure and a financial crisis, which meant that the sugar plantations could not finance the import of food to. F- Feed the workers who were mainly immigrants from India, and some freed previous uh, some previous say people who were previously slaves from Africa who had been freed the previous decade could not be fed, and that they faced starvation without assistance. And the next day, he wrote, um, he sent, he he decided to implement the plan. Um, which was originally the plan for Ireland and that what he suggested for Ireland, and that was um, that the government should finance the import of food into Mauritius in the short term and that a new currency should be set up, um, rather like the reform plan to the Bank of England, in order to make sure that Mauritius was able to finance its poor relief in the short term and then finance the um, expansion of its agricultural industry in order to employ more workers um, and to get the economy up and running that way. In Mauritius, this actually turned out to be a complete success. It was the first place in the world to introduce the currency board, which was the original plan for the Bank of England. And what's so interesting is that the people who were pushing for this scheme were people who are thought to be laissez-faire opponents of intervention in Ireland, such as James Wilson, the editor of The Economist. Well, in fact, he was opposing how the government was planning to do relief in Ireland, but he opposed it because he thought that having a... um, or borrowing money with the Bank Charter Act in force was going to cause financial crisis. He wasn't actually opposed to other forms of relief and other types of policies and more heterodox um, economic policies which um, deviated from the financial orthodoxy and the currency school. And immediately overnight, he said that You know, abandoned his laissez-faire preconceptions and said, um, "You know, there ought to be government interference in Mauritius, where government interference um, uh, might, in normal times, not be justified." And he came up with a plan for the detailed plan for new currency. He 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 also came up with the um, plans for the loans, immediate loans to. um, pay for immediate um, imports of food into Mauritius. And the result is there was no excess mortality in Mauritius as a result of that financial crisis and harvest collapse. But this is takes a very... Um, and this sort of challenges a view in the literature which blames, uh, blames in a very straightforward way, why did British policy um, cause so many people to die in Ireland and blame this on colonialism? Well, actually... There were formal cl- colonies that had much better famine relief policies during the Irish famine. And that, yeah, there is a case to say, actually, if Ireland was run by the colonial office, it would have been had a set of policies which would have worked for it better than the policies it's actually got. And oddly, Ireland was treated worse because it was an integral part of the United Kingdom. And therefore, this isn't quite... This isn't this isn't quite colonialism. We need to find another term for this. This this this, this problem. It might be internal colonialism, it might be something else. But this notion, which is but was has been becoming more popular in the literature over the last decade that it's simply colonialism is responsible for these policy errors, doesn't really explain the full picture. Because there were formal colonies which did get more appropriate policies. But Ireland got inappropriate policies because it had to import whatever policies were being implemented in Great Britain. So ironically, being treated as integral part of the UK was even worse violent than just, just naked formal colonialism. And I'm not saying this because I'm saying that the British Empire was a good thing. I was just saying that as academics, we need to use more precise terms to describe the policy mistakes made in the past for these power structures, which harmed um, indigenous peoples in various parts of the world but we can't just use general vague terms like laissez-faire colonialism to describe this we need to be a bit more pacific in our use of terms and the reason why we need to be more specific is that because uh, there's a lot to learn from these periods in order to still to avoid policy mistakes in the future
1: hmm. And as we've said earlier, right, the myth busting importance of this. Um, So on that idea of preventing them in future, um, as we sort of come towards the end of the interview, is there anything in additional um, you'd like to say about kind of the relationship between these events in the 1840s um, and what we see happening in the UK today?
0: So yes, it's, we've had a remarkable few months in Britain where we had the trust government, the short, shortest-lived government in British political history, uh, announce a budget involving unfunded tax cuts and large amounts of spending to subsidise energy prices to stop people freezing in Britain this winter because energy prices have risen so much in Europe because of the Russia-Ukraine war, triggering a market Panic, which made Britain look more like an emerging market economy than it did um, one of the financial capitals of the world, and resulting in the government announcing austerity and rowing back on these policies, announcing that cuts to subsidies for domestic energy use. and it's a remarkable similarity to what happened in 1847, which was also a budget which made markets panicked followed by austerity and the people who suffered um, in 1847 was Ireland and the Irish during the Irish famine. The people who suffered today are those whose bill, um, vulnerable people um, in the poorest sections of societies who cannot afford the increases in their energy bills that they'll now be facing. Um but it shows the importance, this shows the vital importance of taking the right lessons from history rather than just using slogans such as laissez-faire or colonialism. We should understand the mistakes during the past. Indeed, I have to say, I did actually write to Kwasi Kucheng because I've I've done a lot of other research about financial crises saying, whatever you do, do not cause a monetary policy shock. Do not scare markets, push interest rates up and make Mortgages more expensive for homeowners, make business loans more expensive for businesses, make government borrowing more expensive for the government, meaning that you can borrow less money and then the government can spend less money on trying to help the most vulnerable in society deal with things such as energy price rises. Don't do this because this has caused crises in past. Indeed, I suggested based on subsequent research that I I worked on after writing this book about how uh, British governments can use and how the central bank can deploy policies to um to smooth out increases in interest rates in order so to give people more time to adjust. Um, and of course that, unfortunately that, that was, um, that was completely ignored in spite of that quasi patang does have a PhD in history from the university of Cambridge. Unfortunately, that was ignored and the rest is history and the list trust government is now history. There was a market panic, um, um, the pension fund and there was a the panic hit pension fund so hard that they almost caused the entire British financial system to melt down. And for anyone who has um, has stocks in a 401k, they might have noticed that global stocks were hit by what was going on in Britain. There was a big drop in September, followed by a recovery in the past few weeks after the British government um, promised to, to um, do more to balance its books. And. Um, And I think this shows the importance of learning the right lessons from history or the actual mistakes made in the past, which have been ignored by uh, previous writers, will reoccur again. And we can see this in September and October. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to anyone in, affected by the British financial crisis of 2022 in Britain or further afield. I did my best. Perhaps my book should have come up, out a few months earlier. But unfortunately, that was my publisher's decision rather than, 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 than mine. So if you want to learn about the mistakes of the financial crisis of 1847 and how the British financial crisis of 2022 in the last month or two was entirely avoidable if we'd learnt the lessons of the past. Please do read my book and and tell anyone you know who might be interested about my book, because I think this has important lessons for how to deal with fam- famines today, how to prevent financial crises today. But I think also the, the lessons of how to deal with um, government borrowing to help the most vulnerable in periods of back in 1847, food price inflation and food shortages, and in 2022, energy price inflation and energy shortages. There's still a lot which can be learnt um, by people in Britain and further afield. And reading this book... I hope will people reading this book and the, the argument of this book becoming more well known will prevent other countries making the same catastrophic mistakes as Britain made in the autumn of 2022, which have done and will do a lot of harm to the most vulnerable people in British society.
1: Well, that's a very rousing call um, for why the arguments of the book are so important. So thank you for making that so clear to the listeners. Um, But before I let you go, I'd love to ask, um, kind of given this focus, given what you're working on, um, is there anything you're working on now or a next project you have your eye on that we could maybe have a sneak peek of?
0: Yes, thank you for asking. So I I do have a second book coming out in December called Calming the Storms. the Carry Trade, the Banking School, and British Financial Crises since 1825, where I take some of the lessons I learned from my detailed study of the financial crises of 1847 and apply them to the last 200 years of British financial history. And so in the mid 19th century, there was a series of very severe financial crises, which then actually disappeared after the 1860s and then they reappeared. After the 1970s. So there was something called the secondary banking crisis between 1973 and 1975, followed by the global financial crisis, both two big financial crises which hit Britain severely. And the book explains how um, policymakers in Victorian times. Learned from their mistakes and made crises go away in the late 19th centuries, and how those lessons were lost at the end of the 20th century, which caused financial crises to return in Britain, and how those policies, how the same policies as were implemented in late 19th century Britain, could be implemented today to uh, avoid monetary policy shocks, which are basically interest rates rising very suddenly, very sharply, very suddenly, Causing financial financial crises. The only problem is I don't think that book came out in time either, because um, some of my predictions came true in the British financial crisis of the autumn of twenty twenty two. And on the last set of proofs, I had to change some of the tenses from being "this might happen" or "this will happen" to "this has already happened" with the um, pension fund crisis of September twenty twenty two. So, if you're if anyone is interested in what is there to be learnt for from British financial history and the history of British financial crises to prevent crises in the future um, please do take a look at that book which is published this December the name is calming the storms the carry trade the banking school and British financial crises since 1825.
1: Wonderful. And in addition to that, um, listeners can read the book that we've been primarily discussing, which again is titled The Great Famine in Ireland and Britain's Financial Crisis, um, just out this year in 2022 from Boydell and Brewer. Uh, Dr. Charles Reed, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for the invitation.